thank you for being on our show. You know, you're a legend to us, and we don't watch so much film and, you know, just you being in the history of the game. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you on our show. So we really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. So the first question I want to ask you, when you first got to the NBA, who was the first person to bust your ass? Well, there was a guy by the name of Lynn Elmore. Lynn you Elmore. guys may have heard of Lynn, but he didn't really bust me, but he, he cold-cocked me. I'm oh, coming off a screen in my very first game, and he just, like, threw an elbow right across my head, knocked me <laughs> to the ground. Welcome to the NBA, Brook, and it was a real awakening. Who was the first person to, like, give you buckets, like, score, like, where you couldn't stop them, and it was like you knew there was a higher level than college? Well, there were two guys that, that come to mind, and I don't remember the exact time timing of these games, but I remember Andrew Tony. Andrew Tony. Andrew Tony was a stud right. player, right. and he had been nicknamed the Boston Strangler because <laughs> yeah. of uh, how he had beat Boston the year before in the playoffs. So now I'm coming in the next year, yeah. and I'm guarding Andrew Tony, and all the guys on the team are like telling me, like, here's how you got to guard him. You got to be physical. You got to <laughs> like, you know, get into his body. Don't let him have a breath so anyway i'm i'm trying to be physical with him i mean he's just crushing me and uh, i learned that game like no 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 just let him go where he wants and because he's not really a catch and shoot guy he's like catch face up rip swing through you know beat the hell out yeah. of you <laughs> get the shot off yeah and um anyway andrew was was one of the first guys to light me up and then another guy was was george gervin Ice, and I, I, re man. I remember the Iceman when uh, after the game he I think he ended up with like 32 points and I was in the I was in the training room getting stitches in my head like I think I had six stitches he had elbowed me on it on one of his jump shots and Mikhail comes in and says yeah he gave you 38 tonight I go no 32 he goes nope 32 and six <laughs> stitches <laughs> <laughs> so like uh, it was. Yeah, it was a rough night, but uh, yeah, those guys were amazing, amazing players. Yo, 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 we live on location, Las Vegas, Nevada, 2023 NBA Summer League, man. We are here at XS Nightclub at Encore at Wynn. We got views and right vibes. It's the pool out there. We got partying going on. You might hear a little something, but more importantly, man, I got the blackest one with me. You know, we got a very, very special guest today, man. We got the legendary Celtic Danny Ainge, the big Sir. time. Look, look, y'all don't even know. Big time athlete, three sports superstar in college and high school. And, you know, he chose basketball. We was blessed that he chose basketball, but we got Danny Ainge in the building. We're going to get into World it, man. Champion. We appreciate you pulling up. You bet. Eugene, Oregon. I played in Portland, so I done been to Eugene, Oregon. Eugene is a beautiful place. You was a three-star athlete in high school. Baseball, football, basketball. How did you get into all three of the sports? You know, I just, I grew up, uh, my father was a baseball and, and basketball player, played uh, college football in Eugene at University of Oregon. Before an injury took him out, I had two older brothers that played sports. I, I had a hard time from season to season to know which one I liked more. Yeah. But I loved football and I loved basketball and I loved baseball. And then, you know, in baseball season, 
it, it often rained in Oregon, so you get rainouts every now and then. And so, like, I was big into track too. I was yeah. Eugene is known as the track capital of the world. Yes. And so I grew up like participating in in track meets at the University of Oregon from the time I was five years old, yeah. all the way through my high school career. But yeah, I mean, it was just it's just what we did then. I mean, I had coaches that tried to intimidate me and try to get me to give up one sport or the other well, to, yeah. you know, like you got to play basketball or, you, you know, my baseball coach wouldn't let me play summer basketball. And so I had to go find another team. And then the next year he let me come back. But, <laughs> you know, it was, there's all sorts of pressure on kids, but even back then there was a lot of pressure we faced at playing other sports. Yeah. How do you pick? Like you all American in all three, you all stayed in all three, you get drafted in baseball. Like how did you decide like, I'm gonna play basketball? Well, I mean, I, I didn't know, like I said, you know, after my football, year my um my senior year i was i was being very very heavily recruited just as basketball was starting so i went on some football visits and and thought that i might want to that football baseball was probably the best combination there were some guys that had done both of those but then basketball started and you know i just fell in love with basketball <laughs> right. again and you know we we had the two state championship teams in oregon and we won like 51 straight games yeah and and it just like took over and then baseball season started after yeah, basketball, after basketball and i was like i was in love with baseball <laughs> and i was drafted by the blue jays yeah and so um but i didn't know so i signed a pro baseball contract out of high school to play with the blue jays and i wasn't gonna go to pro baseball initially after i was drafted i was ignoring all the communications yeah. with the blue jays um and i was just gonna go to college and play baseball and basketball yeah. And uh, I chose to go to BYU and was planning that path. And then late in the summer, the Blue Jays came and said, hey, we'll let you play basketball. Um, we'll pay you this much money and we'll let you play basketball in college. Wow. Yeah. And so that was the best of both worlds to play pro <laughs> baseball in the summer and play basketball. So, play basketball so you were getting paid as a, as a pro baseball player and playing college. Like, was that, had that ever happened before? I'm not sure if it ever had. <laughs> that's um, crazy. My coach was not happy that I was making more money than him. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's insane. <laughs> he would come to me and he'd say, hey, you know, you got to wear, you know, the, the coaches have shoe contracts and you, yeah. you got to wear these ponies. I go, those are like the worst shoes I've ever worn. I'm not wearing those. <laughs> yeah. I had to wear my own shoes. And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was just a fun time. I mean, playing pro baseball at, at such a, a young age really prepared me for my future career in basketball. You know, playing in Yankee Stadium and against Nolan Ryan and California Angels. I mean, it was it was Damn. fun playing against some of the the great players of all time. Man, was it anybody else that almost got you outside of BYU? Oh yeah, I was recruited by a lot of schools, and it, when I was looking at football, it was one group of schools. But I mean, the Pac Eight in those days, it was pretty special. I mean, UCLA yeah. was always my dream yeah. to play at UCLA. And uh, Oregon and Oregon State in those in that era was was powerhouses. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was recruited by a lot of schools for different sports, and um, BYU was. Um, I'm talking about was it was it a school that you really liked that almost came in there and swooped you past <laughs> and not to choose BYU? What was the second yeah. school? Oh you? no, I would. It was the other way around. Like I I thought for like my whole high school career, I was going to go to UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon, Oregon State, or Washington. Mm. I was kind of like, mm. I'm going yeah. to one of those schools like my whole life. And then, <laughs> yeah. mm. and then um, 
I had a, a man by the name of Marvin Ashton who came to my house and said, you know, you're an, a Mormon kid. You should go visit BYU because I didn't really have much interest in playing at BYU. My brother had gone there and like left after a year or two yeah. and came and had come home to Oregon to play, finish out his career. And so I wasn't really that into it. And I went on a visit out there and met some people that just changed my life. Yeah. And so it was like they swooped me away from, from all the, the pack all stuff that you yeah, came up thinking about. Yeah, and it was just a different atmosphere. There's 22,000 people at every game. It was crazy. Uh, it was a great conference. A lot of good players in that conference in those days with Tom Chambers and yeah. mm. Danny Vrains was a great player and Charles Bradley. Anyway, it was a fun, fun time at BYU. When you got there as a freshman, was that your first time being away from home? Well, I had been a little bit away from home the year, the summer before playing pro baseball oh, or just see. traveling with the team. Was it like any type of culture shock for you when you got to BYU? But but you traveling, you probably was used to everything. Yeah, not not really. I mean, my culture shock came in my first, after my freshman year at BYU, I went to play pro baseball and, and I was playing in AAA, Syracuse, New York. That was culture shock. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was a really, really tough summer, just being alone and didn't have my friends around me. I was this kind of bonus baby type kid that was given a little bit more than a lot of the veteran players thought that I should have been given. Uh, yeah. Probably wasn't as good at the level as I was playing when, when there were 28, 29 year old guys that had been playing professional baseball. Yeah, But yeah, that was, that was a rough summer. Mm. BYU, the success you was having, it's another level after high school and now you're playing with more worldwide competition. Was you surprised at the success that you was having? Yeah, I, you know, my success was was tough to come by. I mean, when I was, because I'd been playing baseball all summer, I get to BYU and, you know, not at the top of my basketball game in the fall of when my fresh, of my freshman year, and they mm -hmm. got four or five upperclassmen. Mm -hmm. Player of the year in the state of Utah this is on the, is recruited with me, and he's a guard, and I mean, there was times when I'm playing in the in the fall of my freshman year going, man, like it's going to be tough to make the traveling hmm. squad. Yeah. This is going to be tough, a tough year. And then we had uh, what's called a varsity preview uh, after, you know, six or eight weeks of training and practice and scrimmages around the state of, of Utah. And uh, varsity preview, they, you know, you got 20,000 fans in the arena and you know, the student bodies there and and uh, the first half i had like i think 10 points and played pretty well and the second half it was you know the freshmen against the returners yeah and i had like 32 in the second half <laughs> and uh pretty much solidified my position there the next the next week our opening game is we're playing at poly pavilion against number one ucla mm -hmm. And uh, I had a big game there. We lost at the buzzer, and we had three freshmen starting against the number one team in the nation. nation. And yeah. We lost by one point. Kiki Vandeweghe's team there at UCLA. And Kiki. anyway, it was a fun time. And and uh, but it, it, but I had like that was a hard six weeks trying to get that spot. And why yeah. it just happened on that one night, you know, I, I don't know why I would like why I wasn't able to separate myself before that time. But from that point on, I was I felt very confident in my game. You already making money baseball. Uh, what makes it turn to basketball? Like, what makes it turn to like, all right, I'm just strictly basketball. Because you already making money. Like, you seeing the money 
from baseball, but you're not seeing nothing from basketball, but just the love of it. Yeah, no, it was just uh, it was basketball season. <laughs> right. Baseballs are in the closet. I'm like, it's basketball season, and that's the next game. And I mean, I always loved basketball, and you know, I had great coaching as a youngster. Like I said, I had two older brothers that were also very good players, and and I grew up with them. They're three and four years older than I was, so I took a lot of beatings in my childhood from two big brothers. But it was the competition. I just I loved it, and you know, playing college basketball was always a dream always of mine. And so, you know, like, can you imagine, like, first game going into Poly Pavilion, number one ranked? Yeah, that's crazy. Anyway, that was. That was a, a fun time. We had we had a good team. We had good success at, when I was at BYU, and and uh, I got better and better. And the NBA came calling eventually. At what point did you think, like did, in your career at BYU, did you start to be able to set your sights on the NBA and think that that was a possibility? You know, I, I would. You know, when you grow up in Oregon, you're not sure. Like, you know, there's a whole nother world out there. Mm -hmm. And you read all about New York City basketball and the East Coast basketball and the ACC and et cetera. But um, we didn't have AAU. We mostly played with our high school teams in the summers. And we had mm -hmm. multiple tournaments where we played around the Northwest. But I went with a team from Oregon and Washington out to uh, Boca Raton. In a national AAU tournament when I was 18, it was my first time playing in one of those tournaments. Magic Johnson was there, and mm. Kelly Trapuca was there, and Albert King was there. Bernard's little brother was right. a, you know, those guys were the players of the year in the Parade mm. All American. I made the all tournament team out there, averaged like 35 a game, and mm. <laughs> we had we had our battles. I think we lost to Magic's team in double or triple overtime in that tournament. But I felt like then that I was like, I could play with these guys. Like right. I, I belong on the court with them and um, never thought I was better than any of them. Just thought like I can hang with these guys. Yeah. What made you decide to go to the draft? What made you decide to like not to just continue to play baseball? Because, you know, basketball season, they kind of intertwine. But to be like, yeah, I'm going to just gonna go in the draft and just play basketball. Yeah, I think that in 1981, I had, I had made was college player of the year and just not, wasn't sure that I wanted to just give it up for the rest <laughs> right. of my life. And I, and so I wish that I had in a perfect world, I had one more year like yeah. to play pro baseball because I, I felt like my success in baseball was coming too. Yeah. And if I could just like go to the NBA for a year, you know, stay in major league baseball for a year and then, you know, maybe make, eventually I have to make a full-time decision, but Anyway, that decision was kind of forced upon me by the Blue Jays. You know, they were not happy that I was going to go to the NBA. I still had one more year left, year left on my baseball contract. And so I go into the draft, but I had all the cards in the draft because, you know, if I get drafted by a team I don't want, I just go play, play baseball. baseball yeah. If I get drafted by a team I do want, as did happen, I probably would not have gone to the NBA when I did yeah. had I not been drafted by the Celtics or the Lakers. Yeah. Mm. Um, baseball was bigger then. Baseball, and I mean, matter of fact, 
You're from St. Louis, right? Yes, yeah, I so. Yeah, so yeah. like, I mean, St. Louis was my team. Yeah, I mean, I grew up like maybe my oh, two, maybe my go. two. I'll maybe, say this. Maybe, don't say, maybe I'm my so glad he ain't got a little. No, no, let him talk. Let him talk. Stop, 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 stop. Let him talk. My two idols growing up yeah. in, in professional baseball were Bob Gibson and Bob. Lou Brock. Mm -hmm. Those were my guys, and, yeah. and that was my team. My dad grew up in L.A. and how he was a Cardinal fan, I don't know, but he, I was I was just raised as a Cardinal yeah, fan. Lou Brock's wife was my teacher in oh, middle wow. school. Yeah. You're pulling at his heartstrings right yeah. there. No, you no, just, no, I mean, but Cardinals. The Cardinals were the Cardinals were my team, and Kurt Flood and yeah. Lou Brock. Those were my those were guys. So anyway, it was um, that was always in my heart too. Is you know this baseball. So I was torn and and like what I'm going to do and and then. Uh, the NBA, the Celtics drafted me. I, I told all the NBA teams, like, you know, don't draft me. I have a year left on my contract. I'm gonna go play baseball. I'm gonna stay with baseball for another year, and then, but if they drafted me, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had much juice if I'm playing baseball because then I, I could go back to baseball, and then I go in the draft the next year. Next year, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I talked with all the NBA teams that year, and the Celtics had like three picks and. Did you have to work out for a bunch of teams? No, no, I, no, I didn't because I was playing pro baseball during that whole process. So you didn't have to even go through. Matter of fact, on draft, I get a call. I get a call uh, the night before the draft, and Red tells Red Arback tells me that he's going to draft me, mm -hmm. and that they have multiple picks. He's going to draft me, so I'm sneaking into the draft. They have a, like a the big room in downtown Chicago, playing the White Sox. Okay, and. Uh, and I'm like in the studio watching the NBA draft. And when I don't get drafted in the first round, mm -hmm. uh, I think the 25th pick was the last pick. Celtics, you know, I just left and went and played baseball. And like, mm. yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm just gonna play baseball. And then I, the Celtics drafted me with their next pick. And then anyway, long, long story short, there was a big lawsuit between the Blue Jays and the Celtics over the validity of the contract. The Blue Jays won the won the lawsuit they had my rights the celtics had to buy out the blue jays to get my rights and mm -hmm. so back then the draft was like that was when they was doing everything by telephone and all of that it wasn't like how guys walk across the stage and all of that right yeah so it's a good question i don't really actually remember that i just remember being in chicago kind of hiding out don't want anybody <laughs> to see me and i'm watching the draft in this big auditorium that's yeah. crazy well, you get drafted by the Celtics. How is it when you first, like, like you said, you read our back call, you like, what was that like talking to them and you know how the, you know, all of the history that goes into that. And you said that was probably the biggest reason why you, you know what I'm saying, chose to play basketball because you got picked by them or the, you know, you was looking at them or the Lakers. But like, how was it when you got the call that it's official from Red? Like you said, you left and went away. So when did you get the call and how did that go saying like, no, they just picked you now? Yeah, so I got a call the next day from Red, and he t and I told him I'm not sure I'm get out of my baseball contract, and appreciate the call, but I'm you know I just didn't know what I was going to do at that right. point. So I went in and talked with the Blue Jays eventually, and eventually they worked out a deal after a lawsuit, and it, it was all worked out, and I, I ended up getting to Boston. But yeah, I mean I grew up a Laker fan just because I was on the West Coast. Yeah, West Coast. Kareem was like one of my favorite players. Yeah. Like I said, UCLA, I love Bill Walton when right. I was yeah. a kid growing up. It was uh, the Celtics and Lakers were really the NBA. Yeah. So that was a dream come true to go play for for the NBA. But 
you know, still I had had an opportunity to play in Fenway Park against Dennis Eckersley and Tommy John and, you know, face Ron Guidry and those kind of guys in Yankee Stadium. And that was a great experience, you know, just preparing me to go play in big stages in the NBA. When you first get into Boston, y'all, you got Bird, you got Mikhail, you got Robert. They are already a contending type team. So you, when you coming in to play, you coming right into the fire. And y'all playing for nothing but championships. How was that to come in and just being something that has so much history and so much to play for? Every like right away, you're not like on a bad team or nothing like that. Yeah, so you know, I, I show up my rookie year in the middle of the year because of this lawsuit with the Blue Jays, like it didn't get resolved, and mm-hmm. so it's like the middle of December Damn, when, so when you I didn't get to when start I with training camp and all of that. No, I didn't have training camp, wow. and they're and they're winning mm-hmm. already. So, like you said, DJ wasn't there yet, but the other guys were. Oh, okay. DJ came a, a year or two after I was drafted, but. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what a great teammate he was. He was he was fun to play with. But middle of the season, I get drafted. I stay at ML Carr's house. He take puts me under his wing and he's helping me through uh, this transition and he's spending time with me at practice. And my first practice, um, <laughs> I remember Cedric Maxwell, who's sitting on the stage, um, and he was a great player too, very, yeah. very underrated player. And Cedric is sitting on the stage at like, counting out my shots in this first scrimmage that mm-hmm. I'm playing live basketball. Now, I haven't played much. I finished playing baseball. I'm involved in this lawsuit. I'm coaching like the JV team at BYU, just kind of get stay in shape and work mm-hmm. on my own and get ready for the season. And and so now I'm playing live basketball in the NBA practice. And Maxwell's sitting on the stage of our practice court going, Three for 11, <laughs> four for 15, you know, six for 21. You know, he's just like, he's just calling it out. And, and I remember the head coach, Bill Fitch at the time, he came over to me after the scrimmage and he goes, it's not as easy as you thought it would be, is it? And I'm all I remembered thinking at that time was, oh my gosh, I mean, I just got 21 of the easiest shots I've ever had in my life. I'm used to playing against boxing ones and yeah. double teams in college. And, and now all of a sudden I'm like getting open shots. I'm just not, I just didn't make them, but yeah. that, that was my thoughts. Was so right. It wasn't that hard. Like playing yeah. with these guys is the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And I kind of felt that way throughout most of my career. It wasn't easy not being, you know, like trying to find a niche because you got, I think that I played with like five first ballot Hall of Famers yes, right. <laughs> in that era. And they were just so special. I remember coming off of down screens and catching and shooting shots. And I remember uh, Bill Fitch called me over and said, like, what are you doing? And I go, why you, why'd you shoot that? I go, oh, I was wide open. And he'd say, well, what, what do you, what's your percentage you think? You know, you shoot from that. I go, probably 50%. And he goes, what does he shoot? He points to Bird. I go, yeah, probably 60. He goes, what about him? 60? What about him? Yeah, probably 60, all three of them. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, you throw the ball inside. <laughs> I love that because that makes me remember when I was in the three-point contest, 
Barkley was commentating, and when I first started around, he says, uh, <laughs> he said, no, no, this kid ain't going to, he, he, he going to get all his shots off. He got Danny Ainge's disease. He, so he was, that speaks to the confidence that you had. That like, you know, you come off a down screen from Bird and you <laughs> letting that thing go. So, like, I like that because, like, that's what I'm saying. You looking like, what you mean? I'm about to hit too, right? So so that's how you got to be, though. So I, that, that just made me think about that because he played with Barkley, and Barkley probably had the same thing going on. He set the screen, Danny no I was blessed to play with a lot of good players in my NBA career a lot of a lot of very good players but yeah I think that playing with Bird and McHale ML Carr was another one Cedric Maxwell I mean those guys had unbelievable confidence I always felt of my thought of myself as a very very confident player yeah but uh like they bird especially and and he had a whole nother level of confidence than i ever was able to accomplish and achieve but he just gave you so much confidence like you could just he, you could depend he, on him you could just see like his yeah. confidence right. and like everybody just like added to everybody else's confidence how was it when you first met him like what was that interaction like and in getting to like getting to know him he was great. I mean, he was a worker. We played a lot of one-on-one full court, like half court, full court basketball, just, you know, in practice every day. I got to know Larry really well, but he was a great worker, a great teammate. You know, he told me when he didn't think I was taking good a good shot. Hmm. I tell people all the time when they start complaining, oh, the coach doesn't believe in me or the, the star player on our team doesn't believe in me. I go, bro, when I played with Bird, He'd pass it. He'd get double teamed. He'd throw me the ball. But if I miss three, he's not come, I'm not coming back to me. You've got to earn those shots. You do. Yeah. You've got to earn the respect of your coach and your star players all the time. You've got to earn that respect. Get, you know, every game, you got to, like, be reliable and dependable. And that was what I loved about Bird. So tell me this. Everybody talk about how Bird, his trash talking is legendary. As his teammate, like, what was it like the first time you saw, or can you give a story, him telling somebody, I'm about to come off this screen? Because we didn't have Worthy on here, and Worthy, like, yo, he said, I'm about to do this, that, that. Then he come right off and do it. Or he'll go, I'm going to shoot all bank shots, so I'm going to score that. Like, what was it like for you to be around that type of just, like, Larry Legendness? Well, I mean, Larry was a quiet guy, and he wasn't, like, a, a loud and obnoxious personality. But he had a great sense of humor, and he <laughs> he was a character. And right. most of the time, his trash talking it seemed like it was for motivation. It wasn't like he was just always trash talking to yeah. everybody. It was just it was spotty. But when he did it, it was big. Right, Xavier McDaniel story where he, you know I'm going to shoot it fake here, fake here, shoot it there, and, <laughs> you know, he, and he did exactly. And it had nothing to do with the play call. Right. Like our coach would call timeout and we're going to do this. And like we walk on the court and Bird just looks at me and goes, no, give me the ball right there. <laughs> and then he does what he told McDaniel he was going to do. I saw playoff games where, you know, we're trying to exploit a matchup. McHale's having an amazing game against Milwaukee. I remember in Milwaukee. And uh, so we're running a post up for him against Marcus Johnson. So I set a cross screen for McHale, comes in the post. I come off a down screen. And I look up, I go, he ain't passing the ball. <laughs> He's just holding the ball, like looking at McHale in the post like this, and then boom, just shoots a three and makes it. But, you know, he just had his, he just really wanted to motivate himself. Mm -hmm. But the most uncharacteristic one was he didn't usually trash talk to like Magic 
um, Dr. J, you know, guys like that. He just, you know, he had so much respect for them. But I remember the big fight between him and Dr. J where yeah. Moses and was and were holding him back was, and yeah. Dr. J was swinging. It was like <laughs> so uncharacteristic of Dr. J. As you guys know, Dr. J, right. I mean, he's the nicest guy in the world. Definitely. But Larry had scored like 35 on him like halfway through the third quarter and was just jogging back down the court and said, man, you need to retire. Mm. And it was just like, Dr. J lost his mind and like, and that's where that story had started. But my favorite trash talking by Larry and Kevin was a pretty good trash talker too, but Larry was when they, when they trash talk coaches, like when they trash talk Hubie Brown mm -hmm. and you know, they're sitting there playing in Madison square garden and he's just going like taking the ball out of bounds in front of their bench. So the whole bench can hear him right? Mm -hmm. and go like Hubie, this all you got for me tonight. Like you got no one else that can guard me. This is getting ridiculous, you know, and and then Hubie would put in like Johnny Newman would be running in the game. He goes, wait, are you serious? <laughs> That's the guy you're putting on me. But it was it was those subtle things that he said that were just I mean, they were so funny, but we loved it. We but even yeah. the other bench, you know, even Hubie's team in New York is like laughing yeah. at, at birds trash talking. The Laker rivalry. When you, when you got into the Laker rivalry, and it's an every year thing now. How was that for you? Like, how was you grew uh, up a Lakers fan? You growing up a Lakers fan. You loving Kareem, and uh, you know who Magic is, and you know how was that to be in that rivalry and the history all involved in it. Well, you know, I think that because I was a Laker fan, and because I like had such great admiration for Magic, and even Worthy and Byron Scott. Michael Cooper I played against in college and Kareem, of course, um, you know, that was a, a team that, you know, our fans hated them. People, you know, it was like the countries divided between the Lakers and the Celtics, mm -hmm. but like, I never hated them. Mm -hmm. I just like had amazing respect and we thought about them all season long. Matter of fact, and we beat them in 84 at that time, I actually thought they were a little better than us. 85, I thought we were better than them and they beat us. Yeah. And then 86, like our entire season was like every day we thought about the Lakers. Looked at them in the paper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just us and the Lakers and we're watching and, and uh, it's a great motivation for us because we're going to get them in 86. And then they get beat by Houston mm -hmm. in the conference Twin finals. Towers. And that was a killer. I mean, it was like a letdown. Yeah. Because like all year long, like we just, you know, wanted another crack and we were 100% healthy. And it was a team that, you know, it's easy to say now, but like we weren't going to lose yeah. in 86. You know, but how often are your, is your team that good, that many great players yeah. and everybody's 100% everybody, healthy. Yeah. And yeah. we went 50 and one that year at home. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was a little bit of a letdown, but that's kind of our mindset. That's how strong the rivalry was both ways. Yeah. But all respect, they were very well coached with, with Pat Riley. They were deep and great and magic and cream. I mean, like what else do you have to say? The and then styles had, was just so different from- Very different. From mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. To, to play against each other in styles, like the games that Lakers won, it was up and down. The game that Boston won, it was more have court control. Yeah, I think both teams could play both ways though. Yeah. You know, it was like there were games in the 80s and there were games in the 120s. Yeah, yes, and, and it was like from game to game in a series, it would just change and who, know, who knows why, but uh, both teams could defend, both teams could run, both teams could shoot. 
but yeah, I mean, they had great player. I mean, I wouldn't call James Worthy a role player by any stretch, but in that team, he wasn't the best player right. or the second best player. And Byron Scott was another guy that was, you know, very, very underrated in history, but he was a great player who mm -hmm. had to accept a lesser role yeah. uh, playing with that team that he played with. How do you think, like, you came in and, you know, you won the finals as a rookie, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, how do you think, and then you go back and forth with that type of, you know, rivalry and going to the finals and all, how do you think that impacted, like, that type of winning mentality and winning organization and culture going to the finals that much? How do you think that impacted, like, the rest of your career? I think that it sets a tone, you know, like the expectations are really high. When you don't play well, like, you hear it. Right. You hear it from your team, you hear it from your coach, you hear it from the fans, you hear it from the, you know, all of the media, you hear it from everywhere, and that you, you don't get to hide. Right. There's no place to hide. Yeah, I remember one day when, when uh, I was playing with DJ a couple years into my career, and DJ and I were the starting backcourt, and Jackie McMullen, you've heard of her mm -hmm. as a reporter yeah. for the Boston, she had written, um, you know, Danny was four for 13, and DJ was, you know, three for 11 and from the field and the Celtics guards are going to have to make their shots in order to advance to the next round. And, um, anyway, DJ was livid <laughs> right. that like she had written this and it's like, DJ, she just like put our stats in like, that's okay. Like, right. yeah. you know, but he was mad that she was at practice. He was mad she was there. And, but DJ was great. I mean, he just like, he was just not happy to see her that day, but, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the world you have to learn to understand. You're gonna get criticized. The expectations there are very, very strong. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fans and the people there in Boston are expecting championships or nothing else. DJ was our coach when we got drafted. He was the yes, assistant sir. coach with the Clippers. He's one of our favorite uh, people. OG. I think about him all the time, his personality. To get a player like DJ, Coming from Seattle, winning the championship and being so good to be getting traded over there with y'all and being in the backcourt with that. Just tell us about DJ and because uh, a lot of people don't know who Dennis Johnson is. Well, DJ was, you know, like a second round pick at a Pepperdine. Yeah. And um, he gets with the great Gus Williams and David Thompson. David Thompson. And he's playing with an amazing backcourt. They win the championship. And in the late 70s, and he's the MVP of the finals. Yeah. But he didn't get along with Coach Lenny Wilkins very well. And so Lenny trades him to Phoenix for Paul Westfall, who was a great player, but yeah. his, he was broken down a little bit by that stage of his career. But I think Lenny was just kind of tired with of DJ. coaching DJ. Yeah. So DJ gets to Phoenix, plays five years in Phoenix, I think, approximately. They don't really ever get past the Lakers in that era, but DJ was a great player, made mm -hmm. four or five all-star teams in that five years, I think. And then we got DJ when he was like 31 now. We get yeah. him in Boston, and we're all excited about him. He's like, what we need, but Phoenix, I mean, we don't even have to give anything up to get him. We traded Rick Roby, who was like our third-string center, <laughs> yeah. and I don't even think he played much for Phoenix ever. Yeah, And so, like, we... Got a starting first ballot Hall of Famer yeah. to add to our current yeah. nucleus of our team. And, you know, it was fascinating because I don't know if it was because, you know, we had so many great leaders on our team and DJ came to us and, you know, he wasn't the man. Yeah. He, you know, we had 
all those big guys and first ballot Hall of Famers, or maybe he was just a little more mature, but I loved playing with DJ. Yeah. You could see a little bit of why a coach might not like DJ periodically, like a day every other month, <laughs> where he'd kind of act out in a way that you'd say, like, can't do that. Yeah. I remember one time, it's a funny story, my, one of my favorite DJ stories, but Casey Jones calls a timeout and he sees DJs in the wrong place. He calls a timeout. He goes, okay, DJ, dribble it over here. Danny, you go set a screen for Kevin. Kevin, get to the post. Danny, you set the back pick for Larry. And DJ goes, I ain't passing him the ball. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kevin was nicknamed the black hole yeah. on, at that time. And, and so it was, it says, okay, Danny, you get the ball. DJ, you go set the screen. <laughs> and he's going like, I ain't setting the screen for him. And so, you know, and he, he, but he was acting out. So when Kevin passed, Kevin knew that the DJ was not in a good place. So he starts like trying to pass it to DJ and DJ's just catching it and swinging it, swinging it. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's too late now, man. I ain't, right. Yeah. And like, this is going on in the game. Yeah. So after the game, KC Jones, who's like, you know, what a great, great man he was. And he was our coach, but he, was taking his jacket off and like we're going at it. Me and DJ, <laughs> him and DJ, like we're go we're fighting. You are not messing up this team. Yeah. And DJ was great. Like DJ was like, oh, oh I, you know, and apologized to the team. The next day, DJ's great. You know, for yeah. the next two months, he's like the best teammate. He's laughing, but like that's how DJ was. He just like had some moods in that in the stretch that you could see why I coached. But on our team. We loved him so much every day. We knew what he could help us do. And 99% of the time, he was like the most enjoyable guy to be around on the team. Yeah. That's the dopest part, because that's who he was for us. When we came in, yeah. he 18, I'm 19, and I knew I was supposed to be playing. I was killing in practice. And so I, a lot of stuff you saying, I do the same. I, I'd be in there wild. I'm young, Chicago. I ain't never been in no position where if you play and you work, you earn, you don't get. And I'm not knowing the, you know, that they trying to move this guy or move that guy because we had a whole heap of young dudes just got there. I don't know. I don't care about none of that. I'm not, nobody's telling me that. It's not their job to tell me. I don't understand. DJ used to, what he used to do every time. We'd be over there wild and this and third. DJ come, wait, come here, mama. come here, young motherfucker. Grab us up, put us down, sit your hands down right here. Like, like we had so much respect for him. He was like the only one outside of Sean Rooks, but as a coach, he was the only one that could come to us and really like check us and be like, listen here, man, like, y'all don't know everything. Like, y'all don't know everything. Like, you just, like, sometimes, like, it ain't for y'all to know everything. Like, somebody ain't gonna tell y'all shit. He like, he like, you 18, you 19. Y'all ain't did shit. <laughs> the first thing he tell, like, nobody owe you shit. Like, and so we be sitting there and then, like, after he get through doing all this stuff, he tell, like, listen, man, I'm telling you from experience, like, I used to do this, I used to do that, like, it ain't gonna get you nowhere. And like, you know, more and more we look like, for, like, my rookie year, between him and Sean was that was my sanity. Like, cause I didn't get like, I knew I should have been playing. Then I had to watch, you know, my friends play. Then I'm watching the other guys I got drafted with play. I'm like, I was over there, not okay. But Coach DJ, DJ used to keep me together, boy. I swear, that was my man. No, he was my man too. I loved him. It was fun. When he first showed up in Boston after getting traded from Phoenix for nothing. Right. You gotta remember now, this guy's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah. We get him for nothing, and he just shows up and adds to our team. And I walked up to him and I and I said, uh, "Hey, Chemo, how you doing?" <laughs> and he goes, oh, "Why you call me Chemo?" I said, 
oh, I can't let your cancer spread to the rest of us. And he just laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. But he had the best sense of humor. Not yet. And just, but yeah, he was he was great for me. Like he helped me calm me down because DJ had a very calming influence at that yeah. stage of his career. And, you know, he'd put his arm around me when things yeah. weren't going as great. And he was like, but... I'll always appreciate DJ. And I think Larry referred to DJ as like his best player he ever played with. Yeah. Which is saying a lot. Yeah. yeah. You keep referring to that 86 team and how, how that was like the best team. What makes you separate that team from all the other teams you played with and makes them so special and like the best team? I think that the fact that it was the prime of the best players on that team, it was the prime of Bird, who was MVP that year. Mm-hmm. It was a prime of McHale. DJ and, and Chief were still in their prime, and that team was healthy. Mm-hmm. And as we've learned anything in the NBA, like Health, go, <laughs> NBA Finals teams that are healthy, like if you have yeah. a small injury right. or you one get injury. You to the end. Yeah, <laughs> like you could be a great team, but like that health all the way to the end um, for that team makes them that special. And, and then we had, you know, we didn't, we had one player that's a first ballot Hall of Famer that wasn't in his prime, and that was Bill Walton. Yeah. Right. And he was really special. And we only needed him to play 18 minutes a game. But yeah. now he's crazy, but he's <laughs> really, really special. I still, I still stay up at night to watch his game. So on the West Coast, yeah, yeah, he's hilarious. Trust me, he called my our first two years. He called our game. He yeah. loved the, the Clippers. Love, yeah, love Bill <laughs> Walton. Bill Walton. <laughs> yeah, love Bill Walton. Same yeah. person to this day. Love yeah. No, he's the best. Yeah. He's so fun. When you won that championship your first year, did you feel like you made the right decision to come play basketball? Oh, I mean, I felt like I made the right decision when I, you know before what whether we won a championship or not you know it was basketball was, was in like my blood. icing on the cake but but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of why why I feel that way and in you know my I played baseball and I had really good coaches and like my, I told you my father was uh, had aspirations of being a pro baseball player and so I grew up around baseball also um, but I learned more in my first two months of professional baseball than I had learned my whole life. Mm. You know, like there's just so much, you know, you guys are talking about like DJ telling you, you don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Like that's how I felt. When I got to the NBA, I had such good coaching in basketball in my family, but with my high school team and, and my college team, it, I don't really, it, it wasn't this, like I, I knew a lot about basketball. I didn't really learn that much. I learned in the NBA, you got to, you know, guard a rub cut on the inside instead mm-hmm. of the outside. You know, yeah, you jump to the ball. Of it, yeah, yeah you, how to defend a cross screen is different than yeah. what you know. But yeah. but I didn't really learn. And, and, you know, and you learn the tricks. You learn all right. the tricks from the veterans playing yeah. against them. And But I felt like I had actually been trained up more in basketball. And, I, you know, I felt like I just knew a lot more about basketball than I did baseball. How was it when you made your first All-Star team? Um, you mean my only all star? Yeah, I'm sorry, your only hey, look, some people don't get that one though. That's big time, right there. Yeah, had that one on there. Well, it was, um, it was good. I mean, I, I made the all star team because I was surrounded by great players, and you know our team was great. Yeah, there were a lot, lot of worthy all stars every year, as you guys know. But yeah. it was fun to get one, and you know, especially getting some respect of playing around such great players. I was surrounded with. Yeah, how was the experience of the, going to that weekend and and being around all the 
the other your peers and your family get a chance to experience that weekend uh, no it was it was good i joke that um you know the shooting guards of the eastern conference all-star team that year was Michael Jordan and I, we, we combined for 54 points <laughs> yeah. in that game. <laughs> yeah, Michael had 41 of them. Right, but, right. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a fun experience. I mean, you're in that locker room. But again, I think more than the, the actual game itself and, you know, the weekend, I think it's just the recognition that you get appreciated for, you know, being a role player on a great team. You know, winning, winning gets you... It helps everybody get their individual accomplishments, but uh, winning is what it's all about. You spoke on MJ, right? I want to know how was it when he came to the Garden in that playoff series, and you know he had the crazy game, the the was the sixty three points, and you know Bird was like that wasn't that was that was God in a, in a jersey. Like, what was that like when y'all saw MJ coming? Like, did y'all were the dominant, you know, the champions. Like, what was it like seeing him hit the scene and what he was doing to the game? Yeah, I mean, you know, Michael was obviously a great player as a rookie, but he had sat out most of that year with a foot injury. Yeah. We're, we're, how old were you guys then? Were you guys even born Five. Then? Well, no, I was born in 80. I was born 81. Okay, so that you guys were five years old. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but um, he... I mean, he was such a great player, and we knew he was a great player. But in that series, because, again, that's the 1986 Celtics team, and we weren't losing. Right. You know, there was no way we were losing. But Michael, he had some good players on his team, but nothing like he would have as his future expanded. But he, um, I played golf with Michael on the Saturday before that Sunday game. And we played 36 holes and I took a little bit of money from Michael that day. And <laughs> that might've been a big mistake. And as, <laughs> as, uh, as I got out of the car, he says, hey, tell DJ I got something for him tomorrow. <laughs> DJ picked up like his fifth foul, like four minutes into the third quarter. And so like, I got a big chunk of that uh, 63. <laughs> and I remember a funny story about Walton was in that game, we were doing some switching most of the switching, I was always accused of like, you know, you just don't want to guard him. So you just like sw <laughs> switch, switch, switch. And Walton ended up fouling out. And he was cursing me out at the end of that game so hard, like, guard your own man. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Michael was, I, every, everybody knew at the end of that series, even after that 63 points, I think he had another 50-point game in that series. But he brought up Larry's quote. But I think that we all knew that, Michael was the best player in that series. You know, he had earned everybody's respect for sure. If not before that, but by that time, absolutely. So at the end of the Celtics run, when did you know it was like, yeah, it's kind of over. This is like the last season that we have a push to shoot for the championship. I think it was like 88, 89. Yeah, I think it was, I think it maybe been 87. Okay. Um, you know, 86, I thought we were, you know, maybe I still think this, like we were, in my unbiased opinion, yeah. that we were the best team of that era. But Mikhail broke his foot. Yeah. He was never the same. He's still a very good player for a little stretch, but he was never the same. Larry had two Achilles tendon surgeries and had mm. a back surgery. Yeah. Uh, 87, we, you know, we lost to the Lakers in the finals, but we weren't healthy. Yeah. We weren't even close to healthy. Everybody had something wrong with them in that series. And it felt a little bit then, because that's when the, the injuries started happening. And um, yeah, I thought that was the end. Did you get traded or 
Yeah, traded in 89. You got traded. What was it like? Because you've been the Celtic for years. And what was it like to finally kind of seeing this side of the NBA now where you actually go to another team, another city, another state? And I was looking forward to it. I, I was excited about it. Casey Jones was now working in the front office. Him and I were very close. I played for him for four years. And then the two years before, he was an assistant coach. And him and I were very close. Mm. And uh, KC was like telling me, and, and KC, as you guys probably know, was high school teammates, Olympic teammates, pro teammates with Bill Russell. Mm -hmm. And Bill Russell's now the GM in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So Bill traded for me in Sacramento and I played one year there and what a disaster of a year. I mean, not, <laughs> not because of like, we get the number one pick in the draft. We, we, have, we finished the season pretty strong. And then we get Purvis Ellison's the number one pick in the draft. And all the players were like watching his draft work out. And we had a kid named Ricky Barry, who was a first team all rookie team mm -hmm. that year who commits suicide that summer. Mm -hmm. Purvis Ellison can't play. Rodney McRae was a played on that Houston team that we beat in 86 as, as a starter. He has a, um, a colon disorder of some sort and never plays basketball again. And Dang, yeah. like our team just like, but I thought man. Russell actually never got credit for like putting together a pretty good team. Right. I'm not saying we were a championship team, but boy, that fell apart fast. And then I finished my career in Portland and Phoenix going to the finals with those two teams. How, how was that in Portland? Like you got to play with, you know, the legendary Drazen Petrovic and everybody knows how great of a scorer he was. Like just talk about being able to be on a team with him. Yeah, when I got traded to Portland, I was like wondering, like, why do they need me? I mean, here I'm like... <laughs> 31-year-old guy who's, you know, they got Drazen Petrovic, who I had played against in earlier uh, in his career and my career when we went over to Spain to play, and I watched him play. And I was like, wow, this guy is special. Yes, yeah. right. And I even thought he was more special having had the chance to play with him. Yeah. Yeah, then we traded him away for like 37-year-old Walter Davis later that year, and then, he, <laughs> and then his career kind of took off as he got an opportunity to play. But, yeah, Drazen was, was a great, great player. So you joined the, the Phoenix Suns with Barkley, KJ, Dan Marley. And this is an opportunity not to get a chance to be on another good team that has a chance to win a championship. How was that Phoenix Suns era for you? It was great. Paul Westfall was our coach and yeah. the first time head coach. Uh, a, a unique perspective, um, but a happy person. Yeah. who was uh, funny, he was uh, charismatic, yeah. and he was brilliant yeah. in a lot of ways. And um, I, I loved playing playing for Paul Westfall and playing with Charles. I mean, Charles made me laugh every day for three straight years. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like every day year, he made me laugh. The first year he got MVP, y'all, first year together. Right? Uh, I know. Yeah. But I think that was because he was in shape playing on the Dream Team that summer. Right, yeah. right. He came, up, came in in great shape. And, I mean, it was a new life for him uh, getting to Phoenix with from Philadelphia. And, you know, it was brand new stadium, new right. head coach. You know, he was a obviously the main best player on our team and we had a good team so it was yeah charles was charles was great but it, my whole three years with charles uh anyway it was it was a joy tell us about his, the mvp year he had like the tour he went through because you know you got all this the power forward position had a lot of guys that was really good for him to win mvp that year just 
describes you know, how you play. You know, I think that Coach Westfall really managed Charles well. I mean, I shouldn't say manage because, like, you don't really manage players like that. I mean, Charles was in charge, but uh, he dealt with it well. I'll tell you guys a, a funny story of what I'm saying is, and this didn't happen very often, but one night, it's uh, 30 minutes. We're all in the locker room waiting for the pregame meeting, and Charles hasn't arrived yet to the arena. <laughs> and uh, the tip-off is 7-10 that night. We're waiting and waiting and still no Charles. So Westfall stands up from his stool after 10 minutes of silence, and he says, well, if he's not here by 7-10, he's not starting. <laughs> <laughs> was awesome. And we just all died laughing. Right. Charles got there shortly after, and, you know, like we went on and, and played that night. But, uh, I mean, and that didn't happen very often, but that, or ever again that I remember. But that was just like, but that was Paul and yeah. Charles. And uh, Charles didn't practice a lot that year. I mean, he'd sit in the corner and, like, make fun of the rest of us by practicing. But yeah. we kind of liked the fact he didn't practice because we all got to shoot and yeah. play. And, but, uh, but, yeah, Charles was, he was a joy to play with. What clicked that you the made y'all just go to the finals, to get to the finals? Because y'all started working together, Will Oil Machine, and yeah, we had a great good. we had a great year. I mean, like KJ was a special yeah. player. Yeah, Dan Marley was a, a terrific player. Could really shoot the ball, defend, and and Barkley was you know like those three guys were legit all star players uh, in the prime of their careers. Still, you know, we had some good role players that year, but. It was just a really good team, well-coached team, good team. Team believed in themselves and, and had a fantastic regular season that carried over, although in the first round of the playoffs, we're playing the Lakers, and they're the eighth seed, and we're the one seed, and it's a five-game series. And we lose the first two first games game. at home. Right. We go to L.A., and we're down at halftime of game three to like for them to clinch the series yeah. and beat the one seed. Westfall comes in the locker room at halftime and says, like, does anybody know any good jokes? <laughs> That's our halftime speech is guys telling and sharing jokes yeah. at halftime. He just like, the, you guys are way too tense and too tight. Like, right. we got to loosen up and relax and play. We end up winning that game, and, and then we go home and we win game five, and, and we get all the way to the finals. But it, was, it wasn't a guarantee. How was it that year ago, that final series? Because I mean, we, you know, obviously, I'm at that point. I'm 13. I'm in Chicago. I'm, I'm watching. I know everything that happened. Bulls fan, you know, use <laughs> Bulls fans too. Yeah, I say Bulls fan. So you know, we even re seen the replay of it in the last dance and all that. But how was that final series? And you played golf with MJ that t during that series too, right? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> we played a lot of golf over the years. I mean, Michael was obviously he's. He's the best player of every series he's ever played in in his in his whole career, and that's what that's what separates him from so many of the other great ones. I'm not sure he ever played in a playoff series where he wasn't the best player. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, we thought we had a chance. You know, and then we we got behind in the series, and then we got we won a, an amazing comeback series in in Chicago, uh, or comeback in Game Four, I think it was yeah. in that series, and. Anyway, we thought we had a chance, really believed that we could do it going back. And then even late in game six, that was the clinching game, I think we have a, a six or eight point lead going down the stretch of the game and we could not score. We missed open shot after open shot and and uh, you got to give the Bulls a lot of credit. But I mean, that was the most one of the most challenging parts of my career. I'm calling timeout. We're up two. 
They have the last possession. And I'm telling our team, like, and they're like, no threes. Right. No <laughs> threes. No, no threes. threes. And sure enough, they come out of the timeout. We, they inbound it to Scotty. Charles goes for the steal. Right. Doesn't mm -hmm. get it. Scotty starts penetration. I see him hit Horace, and I'm like oh. going to fly down to tackle Horace. I'm going to like <laughs> grab him from behind to make him shoot free throws and hot potato to Paxson, my man. Right. And it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? But yeah, the game was, it's a crazy game, but the Bulls were, they were special. Down the stretch of that game, I mean, there was a reason why we didn't score. Their defense is pretty special. What made you get into coaching? Like, did you think you were going to be a coach? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, so I finished my career in Phoenix. I still live there, and I go straight into broadcasting with TNT. Mm. How I got into TNT, when I got traded to Sacramento, um, there was a player on, on Sacramento's team named Michael Jackson. Michael mm -hmm. was a Georgetown point guard. And yeah. Good in the Patrick Ewing era and John Thompson era. Anyway, Michael and I became very close, and we worked out daily when I got traded from Boston. Uh, we were living in a residence inn. My family was still in Boston, kids going to school. And yeah. so Michael and I just are become very close in that stretch. And and uh, then Michael wasn't in the league anymore after that year. And I get traded to Portland. And we didn't really have any communication after that. And then now I'm in, ending my career in Phoenix. And I get a call from Michael. This is like seven years later. And getting a call from Michael and says, hey, I want you to come be the head broadcaster for TNT. So I go, okay, right. <laughs> let's do it. So that's why I got started there. I did that for one year. And then Jerry Colangelo, the owner of Phoenix, offered me the job, the coaching job, Phoenix. And I thought about it. I go, wow, I mean, I got no experience. I'm like one year out of the game. But so I gave it a shot. Do you think, you know, coming in and being drafted and playing under the legendary Red Auerbach, you know, did that impact you, you know, going into coaching, then front office and all that? Did, did he have any impact? Did you learn anything from him that helped you going into those careers? I, I don't think so, Q, just because I never really contemplated doing those jobs. Mm -hmm. I just, I, ne I didn't really set out to be a broadcaster. Right. I didn't set out to be a coach. I didn't set out like it was... You know, I, I acted as my own agent through much of my career. <laughs> when I signed, when I signed as a That's free ball. agent to Phoenix, like I, I had a five-minute phone conversation with Jerry Colangelo. He called me at the deadline and said, "You know, here's what we got. We had a conversation. Boom, I, I had a contract." Yeah. I think that started a relationship that enhanced that that experience I shared with you with Michael Jackson. I didn't like. There's no intention yeah, for yeah. anything down the road. It's just like we just we exactly. hit it off. Yeah. And uh, I think the same thing with Red. When I got the job back with Boston after I went into coaching, so I, I did broadcasting year, and then I went and coached for four years, and then I went back to broadcasting for a few years, and then Red are back. They, a new ownership group buys the Red is still kind of a, a senior advisor to the team, and he recommends me. I haven't talked with Red for 20 years since he traded me to Russell's team in Sacramento. Yeah. So I think that it's just like these relationships that you build with the people over the years, you don't really know what is gonna come from it. But for me, it, it like that's what set up the rest of my life. I didn't really seek any of those jobs. I wasn't, matter of fact, I turned the Celtic job down three times before I finally accepted it. 
and wasn't what I really wanted to do. I had six kids and, <laughs> yeah. right. and, uh, but finally I just said, why not? I'll give it a shot. When did you start to believe that you can put a team together? Like you have this title to, to put a winning team together for an organization to win championships or to win. Like what made you decide like, yeah, I can do this job? You know, it's a good question. I feel like I'm not sure that I ever looked at it that way, though. I think I looked at it as I can help. I can be a part of a team that can, you know, help put a winning team together. I've been around a lot of good teams. I think that's why Red recommended to the new ownership group in Boston. Like, uh, I've been around a lot of good teams in Portland and in Phoenix and in Boston. Most of my career, I was very blessed. You know, what I've learned now, you know, 25 years later is... Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways to build a team. There's not any one way. Right. Um, and obviously you need a lot of talent to win yeah. in our league. And then you need to be able to communicate and get the most out of that talent. But there's no one way to win. But I feel like trying to create a winning culture is not easy to do. But especially when you have, you guys know this as well as anybody, you're young players, you come into the league, you mm -hmm. wanna earn the respect of your peers. And then you want to make an all-star team. And then yeah. you want to get paid. Hmm. And then, you know, after you, after all of that, now you want to win. Doesn't mean you didn't want to win early. Right. But you want to win it in your terms and your way and like on your timeline. And then you get to be 30 and now it's all about winning. Yeah. And, you know, I think that they're, you're always trying to, so those different timelines of, of young players and veteran players, I mean, when we when we had Paul, Ray, and KG together, they were all in the same place. Yeah, you know, we had to like work Perk in there, and he mm -hmm. was a young player. We had to get Rondo mm -hmm. in there, who was a very young player and having yeah. success. But having those three guys, like, you know, helped Rondo mature faster. Tell me, how did that? Like, at what point when you was putting it together, did it come like, okay, like I can go get a Kevin Garnett and a Ray Allen, like being in the the general manager and setting it up, at what point did you say, okay, I'm gonna try and do this and try and make this work? And then to that point, like, how did you know, like, okay, man, I'm about to get this done. How, what, what was that feeling like bringing them together? Well, when um, I felt like I owed it to Paul because Paul had been a team guy. He'd been a, a real good soldier for us. And he sat out the second half of 2007, just with an injury. We had talked like, if I can't get it done this year for you, like then I'll try to get you to a team that can has a chance to win. Mm. And um, so we had that arrangement. And, and so never did I think KG was going to be available or right. Ray Allen was going to be available. But Ray Allen, you know, new ownership there, two, new management in Seattle. They were getting a high draft pick. So what happened was we made a deal for KG, but I wasn't going to pay the price to get KG if KG wasn't going to commit to us long-term. Right. So KG needed to sign an extension and get, we needed a five-year commitment out of KG and he had one year left on his deal. And KG looked at our team and just went, can't do it, Danny. Right. Like, it, like me and Paul alone, it's just not enough for us to get it done. And so I understood. So then I had this deal for KG with Minnesota. And so I couldn't get KG to commit to us. So I went and got Ray having no idea. Now I gave away the number five pick, which was part of the KG package. So I have no idea how I'm going to get KG. 
but I got Ray. <laughs> okay, but and maybe now with Paul and Ray, KG will want to come. And sure enough, as soon as we got Ray, KG's like, I'm on board now. Mm -hmm. I'm all in. I want to get there. So then I spent the next couple months trying to figure out another way right. to get KG. And it just worked out. Just sheer luck. And it worked. And, you know, we had a great six-year run. How was that to win a championship and to win it beating the Lakers? <laughs> and you got now, you like, this is for you. You've done it as a player, but now you and that, you know, you put this team together. You were the architect. How did that feel? Like, yeah, you know, you know what's different? As a player, you know, like, players are, like, mostly about themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, they're looking after their own careers and, and uh, like, how it impacts them. It doesn't mean that they don't care about their teammates. Yeah. But when you're an executive, like, you see the impact that so many people have. Yes, yeah. nobody has more of an impact than Paul Ray and KG, but mm -hmm. you see the stories of Leon Poe and Eddie House and James Posey and Big Baby and Doc Rivers and Big Baby. Yeah, right on down the line. Like they Scalabrini. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see all the people around the organization that have been there and all the things that they do to make it all work. You know, as an executive, you know all these things. And so it's it's actually more rewarding just because there's so many people that are involved in making that happen. So from that standpoint, it was it was fun for me to see Doc be able to celebrate a championship. It was fun for me to be able to see Eddie House, House. you know, get a championship. Yeah, I and I mean, just but the whole team, it was and, and for Paul Ray and KG to, you know, to yeah. Get that, beat that threshold, that resume. monkey off their yeah. back of being championship players, because yeah. all of them were coming from lottery teams. Mm -hmm. yeah. As an executive, it's it's more fun just because there's more joy to share with everybody. I think. What do it mean to you to be a Celtic, to be a part of their history? When I had the opportunity to go down there and try out for the Celtics, uh, I was there for like two months just to walk into the practice facility. It feels you can feel the history, seeing the. Uh, the banners up and they old with stains on it and, and all that stuff. But how is it for you to just be a Celtic and be a part of that brotherhood? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's brings a lot of joy. You know, when I was a young player, I obviously grew up like, like I told you, the Celtics and the Lakers were the teams. And so I grew up watching them play mostly rooting for the Lakers, but like having this amazing amount of respect for the yeah. Celtics. And then getting there and getting to, to know Tommy Heinsohn and Casey, or I already knew Casey Jones, but all the veteran players, all the, the historical players there, John Havlicek like mm. took me under his wing and taught me a lot when I was there as a player, as a young player, and that meant a lot. But those guys were all around. They, yeah. were, they were around the organization. They'd right. come in and be yeah. part of our team. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like all these guys' numbers in the rafters and they're still part of the community and yeah. they're still part of the history. And and I think that was the best part of it was just getting to know all of them and hear all of their stories and all of their perspectives of the NBA and NBA life and how to become as good a player. Not trying to give away your trade secrets, but you being, you know, You've been executive of the year and like a lot of people would be afraid to pull the trigger on some of the, you know, big, big moves like, you know, moving the big three to KG and, and Paul making that trade, moving some of the deals you've done in Utah. Like, what is it that makes you fearless to do some of those things? And, and I mean, for the most part, they've all worked out as well, too. 
Oh, well, you know what? They don't all work out, Cuba. <laughs> I mean, from, from, from but, you know, the outside perspective. It's like, it's like, it's like shooting, you know, like you're, you're a shooter. You just, you got to take the shot. Right. You know, you can't be afraid to shoot and it's not any different. You got to, there's times where it's easier to not take the shot. Yeah. It's easier to pass it off than, you know, it's not your responsibility. But I've always been one that wants the shot. I've always been the one I've been unafraid. I can deal with scrutiny that comes my direction. And that's part of not having, not making a successful trade or becoming a successful player. You gotta, can't be afraid for the criticism that might come with doing bad deals. But maybe it's just because I'm old <laughs> and I like I'm not I, you know, I have any reason to be afraid anymore. Yeah, man. <laughs> Translation: Shoot, you don't know now. This is a shooter shoot, right? You know shooter what I'm shoot. Shooter, shoot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Most shooters can putt. Can you can you putt? I'm just getting into golf, so yeah. I'm like I'm, I'm about to I'm about to see about all that. I'm dead terrible now, but I haven't gotten to the whole point to where I'm all immersed in it. Well, I'm you should be able to putt. You I should be able to. Putt. I just got measured for my my uh, my club, so okay. I'm, I'm ready now. Good. <laughs> you can't putt, though, because you ain't no shooter. <laughs> Is there a trade that you almost could have made that you regret didn't happen or one that you did make that, that you regret you did? <laughs> I can't tell you those ones, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to know. It could have been some, some, some groundbreaking stuff could have happened. I, you know, Red once told me when I first got the job in Boston, he said some of the best trades I ever made were the ones that I wasn't able to make. Mm. I'm not sure I can say that, uh, but there's, yeah, there were, there's, uh, there, there's been, there was a time when we were, you know, like I was trying to get Jimmy Butler mm -hmm. from Chicago when I was in Boston, but they wanted a lot. Right. And so we didn't do it because it, it would have, and it ended up would have been Jalen and Jason. Oh, wow. Both those draft picks. Oh, wow. That we got Jalen and Jason with. So, right. That was one that, like, I loved Jimmy and mm. was trying to get him. Could have drafted Jimmy late. I liked him even then, but like now he'd be proven that how good of a player he was. And yeah, yeah, that, that was probably one. So now you then transition over to working in the office with the Utah Jazz. How was that transition for you to to move to Utah? Have the family down there now, as you say, and um, just being in the Utah Jazz organization. Yeah, so it's a little bit different role for me, Darius. It's a uh, it's a role where I feel like I'm advising coaches, owners. Yeah, the owner is a very good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have gotten back. I, I really had no intention of getting back into the game when I left Boston. Yeah, I was gonna head out to Utah and do a lot more family things. Yeah, watch my Cougars. You know soccer teams and volleyball teams yeah. and hang out but play lots of golf with ryan smith who bought the team and i've known him for about 15 years before i just he talked me into doing it and you know we talked about what i wouldn't do and what i would do and and so it's not as grueling as the job that i had in boston it's fun to be involved in the game and i really enjoy working with ryan and, and yeah. getting to know all the all the staff and a new young head coach yeah and a wonderful front office staff that I'm trying to help train up for the next big championship run in Utah. I was trying to make, make something special in Utah. 
You done played with a lot of teammates over your career. First ballots. And um, if you had to pick four other players out of all the teammates you done ever played with in your NBA career, who would be them four other players that you would play with? Oh, wow. It's going to be one for the record, but we keeping a, we going to put together I a mean, bracket. It would be hard for me not to not to just pick my four Celtics teammates in 86, you know, mm -hmm. just DJ and Chief and Kevin and Larry. I mean, they were just special people, special. All four were first ballot guys. But, I mean, like I said, Barkley, you know, belongs in there. Drexler, I played with him. He was runner-up MVP the year we played the finals against Michael that year. Yeah. Terry Porter, Dan Marley. Like, I've had, I've had a lot of great teammates. Yes, you have. But... Um, that 86 team was pretty special. So you'll go with that, that yeah. four. You've seen a lot of level of basketball. Like, you played in the 80s and 90s. You coached in the 2000s. You, you're the GM in the late late 2000s or whatever. To see how the game has evolved, see how the game has changed from you giving the big man the ball all the time under the goal to more guard play, more shooting threes. What do you think, how is the game evolving and how is the game doing right now? I think the game is in a great place. I mean, the NBA is as healthy as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. I think that there's, you know, you're always trying to figure out what's the next part of the NBA. Mm -hmm. What's the next phase to try to stay ahead with the game as it evolves. But, you know, I'd like to ask you guys a question. Do you, do you think that Patrick Ewing and Akeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal would be great players in today's game? Yes. Yeah. I think so, too. Yes. <laughs> and so, like... You know, like I hear this that, you know, like, well, they couldn't play because they, you know, they can't play outside. No, the game Stop changes playing. and players different. And, and by the way, those guys, just like I was a good shooter coming off screens, shooting 50%, those guys are shooting 60% in it the paint. There's right. always a place for guys that can score Thank with you. efficiency in the yeah. low post. Definitely, yeah. uh, No matter what your team is. And, uh, you know, but. I give credit to the Steph Curry's of the world who have changed the game, and their shooting is so spectacular. And Clay Thompson, and, and many others, Damian Lillard. Yeah, a lot of guys out there that are you know changed the game and the three point shot and and how it's evolved. But yeah, I still think that there there is a way to play the game that teams had success in the '90s and in yeah. the 2000s, but the game today is just different. And once LeBron. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, think about this. Andrew Bogut was the number one defensive player in the NBA. Yeah. Mozgov is the starting center for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Right. Yeah. They get to the finals, and those guys don't get in the game. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, like, the that. game has changed almost. Like, it, it, but it, I don't think it has to change. I think those guys still can play. Yeah. But because you got Iguodala, who is a very unique yeah, player, player yeah. and you got LeBron, who can play any position on the yeah. court, there's still room for ways that the game was played uh, obviously the three-point line is a big evolution and will continue to be but i think that there's ways to score points in the paint efficiently that not very many teams are able to use except Jokic and Embiid right yeah. now you being a shooter like me confident <laughs> volume shooter have you ever like we know it couldn't happen and we know it is what it is but have you ever like you know fell asleep on the couch with your grandkids and had a dream like you could have played in this era the ability to just jack them up the way like you know we like 
used way before me, so it definitely wasn't even as lenient as it was when I was there. But we, you know, we get snatched out the game for a lot of these shots that's being taken now. Like, could you imagine you being able to play with this type of freedom just to get up 19, 18, three-point attempts and just just to get up all those shots like that? Well, you, just like you guys probably still have dreams of playing. Exactly. Of, of being know, a player. it's not going to happen. I, I, don't, I don't know if I've had a dream about the different eras, but, like, I still dream that about playing and there's nothing like playing people always ask me like what you know playing with the different teams you played on and coaching and being an executive Rock like room, there's that, nothing man. like playing nothing. Yeah. playing is like you know like it, there's stress there's ups and downs mm -hmm. and tough times etc but yeah there's nothing like playing did you ever think the kareem record would be broken i did not no i didn't either no but i remember the first time i saw LeBron play. Yeah. He was playing against Carmelo in a high school game. Yeah. And I, I made the comment at that time, and I got a lot of criticism about, I said, I'd trade all but five players in the league right now. And I think it was Kobe and Dirk and Tim, <laughs> Tim Duncan and, right. you know, for a lot of people thought, yeah, you're crazy. This kid's 17 years old. Yeah. So they came back to me a couple of years later and said, like, you know, you you were right. Yeah. Like LeBron. And I go, no, I wasn't right. I should have said I would trade at any one <laughs> right. for LeBron. But I mean, the fact that he's been able to be as healthy and great for so many years yeah. means a lot. Like, yeah. I mean, his uh, durability has been incredible. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, a, I mean, obviously he's a, he's a f fantastic player. You got, you got to at least play 20 years and at a high level to even get near that he, record. And, yeah. <laughs> With that being said, for him to be the guy to do it when we know him as a passer, yeah. that was, that's what's like the most impressive because I still haven't heard anybody like, analyze him and, and categorize like he's the scorer. He's the all-time greatest scorer, and he's never been referred to as a scorer. He's right. been referred to as the ultimate teammate. I'd rather play with him because he's going to pass the ball and all of this stuff, but he's the all-time lead. That's the most unbelievable part of it, that he's known as this ultimate passer. He's been known as that team guy, pass guy, the whole career, and he's the guy to go break the all-time scoring record. Yeah, that's amazing. So, look. I like to ask this question. For you, it's probably a little different because you was playing pro baseball while you was still in college. So I don't know, like, when you got the money and started getting paid, what did young Danny Ainge do to treat himself? Like like you said, you was making more than your coach at one point. What did, Was you whipping? Was you pulling up nice or something nice? Like, what did no, you, what man, did you I bought, do? I, I bought a yellow dasher. <laughs> you guys don't even know what that is either. <laughs> it's a hatchback Volkswagen. Oh, hatchback. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I exactly what you're talking about. And I bought it at a car auction for a couple thousand bucks in uh, in Utah when I when I got some money. But I bought a condo that I lived in, uh, and I just invested my money. I mean, I was I was not that way. I I was really conservative. I didn't have much growing up, and um, I always thought that that contract was going to be my last yeah. I didn't didn't know what was going to happen but my father suffered an acl injury and like his career was cut short just like that and yeah I, so i think all those things impacted me i got married at a young age mm. had children i have 19 grandchildren now mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i wasn't really a shout a out to the grandbabies i wasn't yeah. a spender <laughs> All right, man. That's been dope, man. We appreciate the legend coming up. Yeah, pulling appreciate up you on guys us, man. having me in. Yes, sir. Tune in.
I want to thank y'all for your continued support of the Knuckleheads Podcast. Be sure to give us two taps by writing a review and rating five stars wherever you get your podcast. And make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can also watch all the episodes on the Players Tribune YouTube page. Follow us on social media at Knuckleheads Podcast. And join our Knuckleheads Facebook group for exclusive content. Thanks again to all of our guests and fans. This wouldn't be possible without y'all. The Players Tribune dot com.